Well, how many times have you seen this film? There's a hopeless team that's lost year after year after year, and suddenly they're magically transformed by this inspirational coach who shows up and turns it all around. Well, I guess that's an easy movie to make in Hollywood, but how do you do it in real life? What if you're stuck in a district or a state where your party has lost year after year after year? You can't remember the last time there's been a victory on your side of the aisle. Can you turn it all around? Where is that coach with the magical inspiration and instruction that can help you? Well, today you're going to hear from just such a person, a coach that was actually named Coach of the Century from the last college he coached at. By the way, you're going to learn two other things. What does Michael Jordan mean by strategic trash talking, and what's the one thing you really need in a campaign that's impossible to get any more of down the line? And today's episode, heck, all of our episodes are brought to you by FedEx. They're fast and they're affordable. And now, onto the court with Coach PJ Carlesimo. So if you're a Republican in California, or worse, a Democrat in Texas, and you're going to run for office or help someone else run for office, how do you turn it all around? Can you turn it all around? Our basic question is: Can anyone turn a loser into a winner? And if we want to answer that question for life, for basketball, or for politics, there's nobody better than my guest today. He's coached three different college teams, each time turning someone with a losing record into a winning record. That third college, Seton Hall, first season six and twenty-three. By the time he left, they had gone to the NCAA playoffs six different times. Coached multiple NBA teams, taking many into the playoffs on multiple occasions. He was even the assistant coach of the Dream Team. And by the way, back at Seton Hall, he was named Coach of the Century. I'm not sure I know anyone who's been anything of the century, but that is my guest today, PJ Carlosimo. PJ, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be with you, Michael. Thank you. You know, we were talking a lot. You're from Scranton, and Scranton just fascinates me. Before we get into the politics, it's the home, of course, of the series The Office. You and I have friends there. It's the home of Joe Biden. And what's in the water there? I mean, what <laughs> is it that makes people both nice and tenacious at the same time? Well, it's a special place to grow up. I mean, obviously, you don't pick、uh, where you grow up, but I was fortunate. My mother was from that area, from Oliphant. My father originally、uh, raised in Newark and、uh, went to Fordham, where I ended up going to college. But、uh, he was the football coach, and then later the athletic director at the University of Scranton. And、uh, it was just a great place to grow up. It's funny because Joe Biden kind of moved out just before I was born, and Scranton's one of those places where if you don't know. Somebody you at least know their cousins. I mean, you hear a name and you go, you run into people from Scranton all the time, and everybody always goes, "No, I didn't know him, but I knew his aunt or his cousin."、Right. Or, uh, everybody seems to be related. It's a tremendous place to grow up.、Uh, great friendships. Great loyalty to the area, even people that move away like I did, and like a lot of our mutual friends did. Still, it's home. We love to go back, and a lot of the、uh, the eccentricities that are there, we enjoy. Yeah, actually, Scranton is the beginning of the story that I want to pursue with you today. There's a guy who you may have known, or your family may have known, Bob Casey. 
And Bob Casey was the governor of Pennsylvania for two terms. His son, by the way, as you know, is Pratt, the, exactly is, went to Scranton is, Prep. Is United States senator? The United States senator there, but Bob Casey Sr. had to run for office four different times before he finally won. And as a matter of fact, one of those times, he kind of got the rug taken out from underneath him. The Republican Party found someone else with the name Robert Casey, but with a higher middle initial in the alphabet. So he went first on the ballot, won. But Bob Casey did not give up. And in the mid-'80s, first time I ever worked with uh, Carvel and Begala, we won. And here was a guy who never gave up. And I guess that's where we start, turning someone who's been losing into someone who can win. Now, you've walked into a locker room on many different occasions. When you walk in the first time and meet a new team or a returning team, can you tell if you're in trouble? Can you tell, oh, we're going to lose again or, oh, maybe we've got a chance? No, I, I think that you realize that it's going to be a difficult situation. And I think being candid and being honest with your team is important. But you also need to let them know how confident you are that it, it is capable. It's going to be turned around. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take some time. But they need a different mindset. Uh, if, if they don't believe, if they don't buy in, and they don't necessarily have to buy in the very first meeting, but I think the very first meeting is important that they understand your confidence and your belief that it can be done, but that it's going to be challenging. I think audiences do that and voters do that with candidates as well. When they see them go up on stage the first time, almost like puppies, they start to sniff the air and they can almost figure out, yeah, this is an individual I can or why should I bother to get behind? Well, I think, you know, your question for us, for us, for a coach speaking to his team, I don't think it's as important that we read the different people in the room right then. But it's very important that they believe in you and that your first impression to them is going to get the job done because they've, they've got to walk out of that room feeling that, yes, that there is some light. Yes, we can get this turnaround no matter how bleak it has been uh, in the past. Yeah, it's almost the old cliche. You only get one chance to make a first impression. No do-overs. Um, have you ever been in the situation where – you spotted somebody in that room, one of your players, and you just said, this is the guy. This is the one that's going to take us to where I want this team to go. Well, I think in, in college, almost always you've had a chance to, to meet with the individuals before you have your first team meeting. And oftentimes you know who that individual is or it's come across in a, in a meeting. In the NBA sometimes you literally can because the players will come back from vacation and your first meeting may be with the entire team and you may not have had a chance to meet individually. You should know who that alpha person is, but um, sometimes in the NBA you've, you've got to discern it at the meeting. I think most times in college you know already going in, uh, this is the guy I've got to convince because this is the guy who's going to have the most impact on his teammates. This always reminds me of the call I got back in, I guess it was 2004, from a political consultant you may have heard of, David Axelrod. Of course. And I was going to be coaching once again the Democratic Convention that summer, and he called me ahead of time to say, Michael, I got the guy. I got this guy, and we're going to run for the Senate, but we're given the keynote this year, and this is the guy. His name was, of course, Barack Obama. So every once in a while, you do spot him. <laughs> now, how do you affect the mindset? 
of a campaign staff, the candidate, or the players, how do you start by convincing them that it is possible you can turn it around, perhaps after defeat after defeat or setback after setback? Well, I think, first of all, organizationally, uh, you have to let them know by your game plan, and I'm not talking a specific get ready for a basketball game game plan, your overall game plan, the recruiting, the going to class, the changing the mindset on campus, the staff you've hired to work with them. Uh, They've got to understand, they've got to hear your presentation, if you will, and they have to come out of the meeting saying, he knows what he's talking about. This makes sense. If we do A, B, C, D, he's going to give us a staff to work with. He has the cooperation of the administration or of the ownership of the team. There's a commitment there. And if we follow the roadmap, we can be successful. But they've got to understand that there is a roadmap, that it makes sense, and that there's cooperation on a lot of different levels, certainly from above, but that the staff that you have assembled to work with them is very capable, is going to push them. And if you work with them, there will be results that follow. Yeah, that staff is really important because even though the candidate may be out there several times a day, more contact with the voter is going to be through the staff and by spokespeople and the like and making them believe. You know, you had to turn, in a sense, get it started every year. A politician has to do it either every two years or every four years, every six years. At some point, are you ever afraid it gets old? That they go, ah, I've heard it all before. And how can you say, no, this year can be different or this campaign doesn't have to be the same as the last campaign? Well, the the good thing about coaching a basketball team, whether it be in the NBA or whether it be in college, which is basically where I've done all my coaching, a little bit internationally also, Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't matter the level. A season is just that. It gives you a chance to start all over. And a lot of people fortunately or unfortunately in their professions, don't get the immediate feedback that you get from a basketball season. I mean, there's wins and losses, and uh, the season's it's not always defined solely by that, but you get that feedback every year, and you get the opportunity to start all over Mm -hmm. every year, which is really a tremendous luxury. And, you know, each, each individual season is a journey unto itself. I guess there's a danger because there aren't that many people that have done it, the two guys in college that have done it the longest when you look at Mike Krzyzewski at Duke or Jim Beheim at Syracuse because they've been there for a long time. But, you know, players turn over. Uh, most of them are going to graduate within four years, although nowadays with the one and dones, right. sometimes you don't get a chance to keep them as long. But you do get fresh faces every four years. The NBA, other than the superstars, there's a lot of movement there, and, and it's unusual in professional sports. A Greg Popovich or a, a Bill Belichick are, are the exceptions because they stay at a place for a long time. But over the course of a year, I think it's a little more challenging in the NBA because you're dealing with professional athletes, men in our case, who do this for a living, and in some of them have been doing it for 10, 12, 14 years. Mm-hmm. And when you play 100 games a year, halftime talks or pregame talks or preseason talks, they've probably heard most right. of what anybody's going to say to them. So that does get a little challenging. Yeah, their lips are probably uh, moving along with you. At, better be at, short at and, <laughs> and better be innovative if you can, or else just cover the facts and let's get out and do it. You once faced a situation that I found really interesting, and I'm sure a lot of state parties are going to face. I think it was in your 2007-2008 season. 
several of the starting team got traded away before you showed up for the first day. And you had like massive change. We may be seeing some of that in the Democratic Party. We're going to have more young people and people from diverse communities run, never seen before. Republicans, they're retiring. The incumbents are returning left and right. So what happens when suddenly you show up and the cast has substantially changed? Well, good news, bad news. Uh, If it hasn't been overly successful, you kind of like the opportunity to be able to mold uh, the new players, uh, if you will, in, in basketball to the way you want. Greg Popovich has a term that he used, it's a great term, called corporate knowledge. And that's when you have continuity from year to year and you don't have to do as much explaining. And when you've got a level of success coupled with a lot of returning personnel, that's a very good thing. He doesn't have to reteach stuff every year. That corporate knowledge is there, and the older guys or the veteran players can help you pass that on to the young players. When you've got a new situation like the one we're talking about, there's virtually no corporate knowledge, and the teaching goes a lot slower. But again, when you start all over, if you will, or virtually start all over, uh, you can go back to the basics and you can pretty much structure it the way you want. So challenging, yes, makes it a slower process, a more tedious teaching and learning process, but there's an advantage to that also. Obviously, when you're in a campaign, just like if you're in for the season, you got to start to scout the opposition. And I've always wondered what is smarter, looking for the other team's weaknesses or their strengths. So you can either capitalize on the weakness or avoid the strength. Well, I think obviously you've got to do both. You have to be aware, first of all, of what are the things that they do well, because you've got to make decisions like what's going to work for you. And if, you know, if you're playing a team that is particularly strong in a certain area, they're better than you in that area. Yeah, you, you might be a little wiser to put, put your efforts somewhere else. Well, this is where we can take advantage of them. So although I do think it's both, I think particularly game planning, when you get ready to go and, and compete with somebody, you try and go at their weaknesses. You try and take advantage of their weaknesses. Right. The most famous one, I guess, I got involved with goes back a little bit, but is the famous 1988 vice presidential debate between Dan Quayle and Lloyd Benson. And we actually, we were going through one of the preps and the fellow who was playing Quayle started to quote Jack Kennedy. And, you know, I sort of stopped the rehearsal saying, look, that's never going to happen. And Dennis Eckert, that was the congressman, said, no, 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 I've served on the floor with him in in the House. When he panics, he'll go to Jack Kennedy and pull out one of the three quotes he may know from him. (laughs) So we said, well, should that happen, let's have a little something in our back pocket. Now, we never thought it was going to be as big a deal as it turned out to be. But it is the advantage to sort of scouting and knowing who, who you're up against. Without question, and also individually. I mean, and even though it's a team sport, basketball is not. There's only five playing at one time, and there might be eight or nine guys. And sometimes you don't know if, for instance, a sub is going to get in, or you know, if 
But sometimes fouls, circumstances, injury, you know, you just say, hey, boy, if, if we could ever get to that second group or if these two guys get in the game, yeah. then we can press, we can do this, we can do that, we can take advantage of it. Uh, you try and prepare for every eventuality. You don't know if it's going to be there, but it's important to try and anticipate as much as you can because if the opportunity presents itself, uh, it, it's an area where you can really take advantage of that, you, you know, in a lot of other areas – incrementally you can succeed a little bit but here's a chance to really hit a home run you can't necessarily control it but when it's there you better be able to take advantage of it sure one of the more interesting guys i worked with was interesting on many levels one because he's the only person i ever worked with who would immediately come in the room sit down in front of the screen and say let's look at the tapes at what we did and that, of course, was Bill Bradley. <laughs> he was the only guy who said, how else can you possibly learn until you look at the game tape and see what you did, what they did, and what you're going to do? And it's amazing to me how many candidates just refuse to do it, uh, probably because they're scared or they're self-conscious, what have you. But how do you learn? I couldn't agree more. And you, you mentioned one of my favorite people. I mean, I grew up Really, uh, he was a hero growing up in Missouri and watched him play at Princeton. And then I was lucky because actually when we were at Seton Hall, Bill was a United States senator. Yeah. Uh, came up, actually, we were on the road, but watched some of our NCAA games on the campus with the other students. And then later on, when I was coaching Golden State and living in San Francisco, uh, when Bill would come out, it happened that the friend that he would stay with in San Francisco lived in the very same building I did. So it was a, a friendship that developed over the years. But it was a guy that I admired enormously because he was so intelligent and yet at the same time, he didn't take himself seriously. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that trait of, of going back and looking at what you did, yeah, I mean, hopefully you're going to look at some good things. But the truth is, you're looking yeah. for mistakes. You're looking for the things you don't do well that you can improve on. And if you can't really look at yourself critically and if you're not willing to learn from your mistakes or take some criticism yeah. and, and improve, I don't know how you get better. Yeah. One of my favorite Bill Bradley memories was, I think, the 2000 convention in Los Angeles. We do the rehearsals usually at the site, and we usually do it underneath the podium or something. And we happen to be in the visiting locker room at the Staples Center. And he came in and looked around, and there, of course, is the erasable board of how to draw plays. So he said, let me show you a couple of things. And he started drawing plays from games like 10, 15 years ago. When it comes to game plans, which is what he was talking about, you know, there are many different versions of the same kind of quote, which is every general has a battle plan until the first gun is fired. I think Mike Tyson says everyone has a fight plan until they get punched in the nose. How long do you stick with the game plan? How soon do you abandon it? Is the temptation to stick to it too little or too much? What's been your experience? Well, I think probably more often than not, you stick with it too long because you've put a lot of time into it prior then. Every once in a while in the NBA, you get caught in, used to have a lot of four and five nights and where you don't really have a lot of time to implement the game plan. You kind of, if you've got an experienced team that played a particular team before, you can talk to them at the shoot around if you, if you happen to have one that day. Oftentimes you don't. You talk about, hey, this is what we're going to try and accomplish. And that's really more of a on the fly, you're, you're making adjustments. When you have time to prepare, which you almost always have in college, and you do have in the playoffs in yeah. the NBA, the playoffs in the NBA most closely resemble – 
uh, getting ready for a college game because you've got time to get ready. Uh, you've got time to look at a lot of tapes and maybe make some adjustments on the practice floor or at a shoot-around. So when you have time and you've invested a lot of time, you have a belief in your plan. You don't want to just chuck it right away on the fly. Having said that, you got a clock. It's a 40-minute clock in yeah. college, and it's a 48-minute clock uh, in the NBA. And again, that, that's so finite compared to what politicians or yeah. normal people deal with. But I mean, you know, our our world becomes 40 minutes or becomes 48 minutes. So the scoreboard and how much time is left and how well your game plan is working is going to tell you how quickly you better adjust or you better throw your game plan in the garbage. But I think those of us as coaches, knowing how much time we've put into it, probably have a tendency to stay with it a little longer than we should. One of the tough things in politics or running for any office is – is your message working? Is it having an effect? The problem with message is that you've got to be on it for quite a while for people to hear it and for it to sink through. You know, the example I give is I know the first time in, what was it, 1996 when Bill Clinton said building a bridge to the 21st century, and that was in early May. Now, he's building a bridge May, June, July, August. You know, we could puke by this time. We've heard it so much. Finally, first week in October, my retired father in Woodside, Queens, calls me and asks, what's this bridge he's building? And I always say, if it took the incumbent president that long to get his message across, how long is it going to take you? When you, I'm sure you have faced this on more than one occasion, halftime, you're down and you're just getting the tar beat out of you. Just like halfway through a campaign, you look at the tracking polls and you're just sucking wind. You not only have to talk to the candidate or the players, you have to talk to the supporters, the staff, the campaigners. How do you breathe life into what looks like it could slowly but truly becoming a corpse? Well, I, I think, first of all, you you got to reduce it to its most manageable terms. I mean, whatever it is, let's just say it's a 20-point deficit, 15-point deficit at halftime, which is significant. Uh, you need to say the old coach's cliche that they've heard a million times, but you need to say, hey, we're not going to catch up all at one time. Like when we go out there, that's our goal. Uh, you've got to reduce it to a to a smaller portion, a, a manageable portion, a, a, a goal that an increment clearly that they can take advantage of. And and you have to also look. You get a couple minutes to sit with your staff before you go in and talk to the team. Is the problem the game plan? Is the problem the opposition? Is the problem some individual performance? Do you have to change the lineup a little bit? Yeah. The obvious one. It's a different sport, but it was kind of amazing. But the national championship last year, uh, Nick Saban changes quarterbacks at halftime, which astounded everybody, but it worked. I mean, yeah, that was an amazingly courageous move, and it worked. Yeah, first debate 2012, Barack Obama against Mitt Romney. I wish we could have pulled him uh, halfway through that first <laughs> debate. You know, and But the point is, every once in a while, despite all the best efforts, it's just not there for you. You're just having a bad night. And outside of prayer— I don't know what you do about it. You don't. You have to take your lumps. I mean, that that, that happens, obviously, to, to teams. There's nights for whatever reason. The other team, everything they've thrown up is going in, or it's your third game in four nights. You're exhausted. For whatever reason, it's over. And that's when the postgame talk becomes a little more important. <laughs> it's a short one, but yeah. it's, hey, we'll get back to work tomorrow. Yeah. We're going to take a day off and uh, when we get back to work. 
But as you said, when it's a, a campaign, I really think it's easier in sports because you get a chance to do it again. Right. I mean, you don't have 30 debates or 50 debates in a year where you can kind of try and change the uh, political opinion. Sometimes it just feels that way. <laughs> Now, what about the flip side of the coin? What if you're cruising along and can they get complacent? And how do you also convince a candidate, you know, don't read the polls. You may not be as well off as you think you are. Well, for coaches, it's an easy thing because if you've coached long enough, you've read or heard people tell you, that you don't know anything about the sport and you've heard them tell you that you're a genius and everything you're doing is, is great. So uh, if you have even a, an iota of intelligence, you realize you can't listen to other people. It's a little more difficult for a player, uh, mm-hmm. particularly young players in college, but even inexperienced guys in professional sports. You can't listen uh, to, to the outside rhetoric. You, you've got yeah. to have a confidence in what you're doing. You've got to do it you know, on a consistent basis. And if you're going to get complacent and you're going to start listening and you forget what got you to where you were, you get knocked off pretty quickly. Yeah. I always remember these two things. 1992, then-candidate Bill Clinton walked off the stage in New York City, and literally the next morning, they started the national bus tour. Literally about five, six hours later, they're on the bus, they're campaigning. Flash forward to 2004, John Kerry, great guy, wonderful candidate, great speech, uh, took a couple of days off went to Nantucket where they took pictures of him windsurfing the opposition. And let's just say we lost a little momentum. You know, good judgment comes from bad experience. Well, it does. And, and it, you know, again, in athletics, you always preach Michael Jordan in my era, uh, LeBron James now, Kobe Bryant. One of the many things they had in common, they outworked the opposition in the summer. When they had more reason than anybody to, you know, rest, if you will. A, they played longer seasons. They went deep in the playoffs. They won championships. They had more reason to take it easy in the summer, and they didn't. They went back and they added to their game. And you had other players who needed to work twice as hard as those guys or more, and they wouldn't. And we'd come back at the beginning and say, you know, you don't understand this. Michael Jordan went from being a pretty good shooter to a very good shooter. And he did that by working in the summer. Right. LeBron James, Kobe Bryant probably had the best work ethic of anybody in the game. And these other players who were lesser talents and should have been outworking them, they allowed themselves to be outworked by a superior talent. So, uh, you know, it, it's very often the case that the people that get where they want to be in terms of their goals are the ones that outwork the opposition. Yeah, it's the campaigners who campaign all the time who get better. It's the speakers who speak all the time they get better. Let's take a time out for something important. PJ's been talking about teamwork to achieve a common goal. When you need to send your stuff to the right place, fast. You need a team that knows what it's doing and can deliver consistently. That's FedEx. Now in basketball, like PJ's been talking about, you have to inbound the ball, you have to bring it up the court, you have to get it into the right hand, set up the shot, and then make the shot in time. And FedEx has to do the same. Inbounding? Well, they've got to get your stuff at one of their thousands of pickup points across the country or even at your office. 
Then they have to get it onto the right plane at the right time. So if your stuff is bound for Denver, it's not on the plane to Dallas. Then they have to set up the delivery. So they have to sort it at the delivery site to make sure it's on the right truck and headed to the right place. And then they have to make the shot on time. They have to get it to the person you want it to get to on time. So when it's your stuff, FedEx and its championship team will get your stuff where you want it, when you want it, to whom you want it. So that's FedEx. It's fast, it's affordable, and they deliver, literally, on time, time after time. You talked about something before, let me go back to, that idea of the clock. When I work with somebody who's running for office the first time, part of my introduction to what I think is ahead of them, I'll tell them, look, there are going to be times along the campaign you're going to be able to raise more money. There's time maybe you can make another speech. The one thing you can't add to a campaign is more time. And so having that sense that the clock is ticking down from the more you say, that's why I'm declaring my candidacy, you got to start to think of that tick, tick, tick going on. As you look back at stuff, you know, I have the feeling that you and I have something in common. We think, why did I do that? How did I let that happen? Why did I tell that candidate to do that or didn't tell him or her to do this? Anything that just sticks in your craw to this day? Well, probably uh, jobs taken or, or, or not taken. And, and oftentimes it's not necessarily a decision that you did do. It's something that you didn't do. Sometimes are, are the best decisions you make, but uh, sometimes they're the ones that, that go on you. Uh, when, I, when I look back at Golden State, I loved my time in San Francisco. The most important thing that happened there, I met my wife. I hadn't taken a Golden <laughs> State job. Uh, I wouldn't have met my wife. So from that standpoint, I'm thrilled I went there. But in retrospect, when you look back, uh, when I left Portland, we were we had been in Portland for three years. It was my first NBA job. We'd been in the playoffs three times. We'd certainly had a level of success. And I think I was viable. I was a viable candidate. Yeah. I was going to get another opportunity. I may have jumped too soon at a position that was uh, was a very difficult, turned out to be an extremely challenging situation. As much as I loved San Francisco, as much as I enjoyed my time at Golden State, I probably would have been better off career-wise had I waited and taken a better job. There's hundreds of games where I made decisions, whether it was substitute or do you foul, do you not foul, what play do you run at the end yeah. of the game. The, the, the good thing about a coach, if you do it long enough, and I did it basically for more than 40 years, uh, you get other chances. My Michael Jordan always talks about the shots he missed. People forget it. There's a lot of guys who are scared to take shots at the end of the game. And Michael's a great quote. I should know the exact words. I don't. But the gist of it is everybody remembers the ones you make. They forgot all the ones that I missed. But you got to have the confidence to take that shot at the end of the game. There's one miss I certainly remember. It was the vice presidential debate in 2000, Joe Lieberman against Dick Cheney. And we had been listening to them talk for the few weeks coming up to it. And they talked about how they were going to go in and they were going to go after Lieberman and they were going to go after Gore. So we put together a strategy, to be quite blunt, that was all comebacks, all how I'm going to counter, how I'm going to counter. If he does this, I've got – so we came in there with every single response and then Cheney did the exact opposite. He treated it like meet the press. He didn't even engage with us until about 
you know, 80 minutes into the debate and are just sitting there going, we got head faked out of our shoes. That's the one that I still every once in a while wake up in the middle of the night and how could I let that go? And we were victims of the next thing I want to talk about, which is trash talk. Now, there's a little bit of that in politics. There's a heck of a lot of it in basketball. Does it help? Does it hurt? Do you like it? Do you hate it? I don't like it. In college, you can control things a lot more readily than you can in the NBA. I mean, you're dealing with with young guys, the coaches, basically the king. I mean, you recruited them. If you're moderately successful at your program, you're going to be there. Uh, the players know that. They come there to play for you as much as they come to get an education and attend a school. Uh, who the coach is is a big part of it, so you can control it. I don't like it. Uh, I, I think sometimes it, it motivates guys. I don't think it's necessarily the classiest uh, way to operate. In the NBA, you don't have control over it. They're men. Uh, this is what they do for a living. You, you know, you, that's not a battle you want. You got enough more important battles to fight than to try and manage guys. Some guys like to trash talk, some don't. And it's an and it's an individual thing. There are yeah. players, and Draymond Green to me is is the ultimate right now that's playing for the Golden State Warriors. He thrives on it, and he backs it up. I, I I don't know that he could play without trash talking. He also um, seems to do it with a smile on his face. Well, it, he, it, he does, but I guarantee you he's very annoying <laughs> to his opponent a good deal of the time. There's also nights where he's very very uh, annoying to his teammates, whether it be technical fouls. And there was a you know very famous one when he when he was suspended uh, and didn't play in a game. A lot of people thought that cost Golden State a championship when when yeah. Cleveland came back a few years back. But there are other guys who do it. I don't know why because they think it's the thing to do or they think they should do it and they're not good enough they can't back it up and sometimes it just serves to antagonize an opponent I remember a a player we had it at Brooklyn when I was coaching the Nets and we were getting ready to play Miami when LeBron was still playing for Miami and uh, he had it, it wasn't trash talk it was trash talk in the newspaper, which was worse. Like right. the day before the game was something to the effect of, "Hey, LeBron James is no different than anybody else. Everybody, he, you know, he's he's overrated. He's you know puts his shoes on the same way as everybody. We can control him." And uh, that particular day, LeBron needed uh, you know maybe he needed a little motivation. It was the middle of the year. Brooklyn wasn't that good a team, so he seized on it. He read the newspaper. And he got it. Came out the next day and went for like forty-five <laughs> points. And he yeah. said, "Hey, I read what he said in the paper. You know, how's that?" So it, it can backfire. Yeah. But again, in Draymond's case, it's a positive. Yeah. The only exception to the rule, I think it was told to me by Tom McMillan, who was a member of Congress and also played. And he said he had once heard a story about Michael Jordan, who went to the foul line and there was a little bit of a hot shot a rookie on the other team. And they were getting their position for the foul shot. And he said that Jordan sort of looked at him and, and very quietly said, hey, rookie, watch this. And he closed his eyes and made both foul shots. <laughs> if you got to talk trash, I guess that's the way to do so, it. Some guys, you don't rattle their cage. Michael or LeBron might be two of those guys. Yeah. At some point, a campaign has a tough call they have to make. You can't fire the candidate, but sometimes you have to let a campaign manager go, a spokesperson go, a pollster go. Goodness knows in basketball, sometimes you have to make cuts. How hard is it? And again, is the temptation too early or too late? Probably the most difficult thing you do in coaching is cutting, uh, whether it be a collegiate 
on the collegiate level where you're probably ending their their career. I mean, it's the end of their bat. You know, they've they've played bitty basketball schools, high school. They were probably if you're cutting them from your team, they're probably a good high school player. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you're telling them, well, guess what? You're you're done. You're not good enough anymore. That's very painful. In the NBA, it can be even worse because you're ending. Uh, it's their means of of providing for their family. Sometimes guys, yeah. you'll cut a guy and they will bounce somewhere else. But for the most part, uh, you're ending careers. So it's very, very difficult. The irony of it is you're cutting a guy or girl, but uh, in my case, you're cutting a guy who's borderline for the last person on your team. And coaches, because we, we so dread it and we so don't want to hurt people's feelings, you invest a lot of time in it, but if you could kind of sit back dispassionately and look at it, you're wasting time. You got to spend time with the other twelve or thirteen people that you're gonna you're gonna keep, and you waste so much time trying to decide who's this last person on your team. So it's uh, a yeah. you, you kind of are caught between a rock and a hard place you want to be fair but you're wasting time and i I think too much we invest too much time in doing it you've got to be colder you got to look at it dispassionately and you got to say hey we got to make this cut we got to get on and we got to do the things that are important for us to be successful yeah there's one advantage you have in basketball we don't have in politics every once in a while you kind of wish you could cut the candidate's spouse because um, you can get rid of the others. That one's hard. And most of the times it's well in intention. But the one that I remember, I think it was 2012, Hillary Clinton had a speech, came down. We had rehearsed it. It, it was OK. But we had a couple more rehearsals. So she comes back from the next one. They load it on the teleprompter. I will never forget this. She starts to give it. First 45 seconds is fine. Then she keeps reading it and this very strange look comes on her face. And then about a minute and a half into it, she goes, what the heck is it? This isn't my speech. Well, Bill Clinton wanted to help. So he made some revisions. Sometimes that happens, but you can't (laughs) find – and if he's both your husband and a former president in the United States, you're in a very tough position. I would say so. You know, we're talking about teams and that idea of building a team can be hard, particularly with people who are frustrated or see the end in sight but can't quite reach it. And yet not everybody is on board. And One of my favorite quotes is Casey Stengel's famous, the secret of being a successful manager is to keep in the 20 guys on your team who hate your guts away from the five who haven't made up their mind yet. You've had to deal with teams, but you once had to deal in a weird way with one of the toughest teams of all, the dream team, where you had stars. You, they weren't just stars. They were universes. How do you keep a team like that together when they're used to being the star? Well, first of all, the, the person that deserves all the credit is uh, the late Chuck Daly, who was the, the head coach of that team. And we were fortunate. Uh, assistant coaches, Lenny Wilkins, uh, myself, and Mike Krzyzewski, and, and we were glad to be a part of it. And it was really instructional, and it was a great learning process for us to see how Chuck did handle that group. But uh, there were things that that was a unique situation. First of all, Chuck had relationships with most of those guys because he had just he had won a couple of championships in the NBA. He already had enormous respect from that team. It was a good time for us because we were coming off a loss. We had lost in the Olympics in 88 in Korea, and 92 was the first time that they had allowed the professional basketball players to represent 
They're mm-hmm. different countries. Right. So we had something to prove. We had just we had just gotten knocked off our perch. We'd used to dominating and we had lost in eighty eight. You also had some players who had not been. You had guys like Michael and, and Patrick and Chris Mullen. You had some guys who had been a part of the 84 Dream Team. You had David Robinson who had been a part of 88 when they had lost. Right. But you had a number of players who never had the privilege of representing the United States in the Olympics. So all those things came together and is remarkably talented as those guys were individually they were all far enough along in their careers that they understood that the most important thing was for the United States to win the gold medal. And that if they won the gold medal, it didn't matter who started, it didn't matter who scored the points, that it was this basketball team that came to be known as as the dream team was going to get the credit. So they totally bought in. I remember the first, you talk about first meetings, I remember Chuck addressing the team. It was in La Jolla. We trained it at uh, UC San Diego for a week before we went to Portland for the Tournament of the Americas and well in advance of going to Monte Carlo where we trained for a week and then ultimately to Barcelona. And Chuck told them, he said, hey, we know everybody thinks we're going to win. We're supposed to win. We have the best talent. And should we do that, everybody's going to go, well, of course, that's should have happened. But if we're going to be successful, you guys all have to check your egos in. And you've got to be able to do whatever it takes for us to be successful. And they totally bought in. Yeah. Sometimes, unfortunately, I've seen the opposite in politics. One that comes to mind was at the time he was the governor of the state of Georgia, Zell Miller. As a matter of fact, we gave him one of the keynote addresses in 1992. Later, he was elected to the Senate and suddenly became number one in the state to like number 54, 55 in the Senate, and he was never comfortable with it. As a matter of fact, I think he got angry about it. And 12 years later, 2004, he's giving a speech at the Republican National Convention against us. So some guys, it's, and you know, that discord happens. 1980, Ted Kennedy decides to take on the incumbent, Jimmy Carter. Huge divisions between the Gore and the Clinton campaign in 2000 where Al Gore is saying, you know, Bill who? When you have something that's ruptured like that, is it repairable on a team? It's very difficult. Um, You would need to create massive change and and I don't know. The kind of rupture you're talking about, uh, that just goes against. Uh, that's usually what allows your opponent to take advantage of it because if you're not all on the same page, unless the opponent or the goal that you're trying to achieve is not significant, you can't be successful. I mean, you can't can't preach to people all the time and stress to them how important it is that everybody be on the same page and everybody be pulling the oar the same way. And then all of a sudden it goes the other way. It's almost incomprehensible in team sports that you're able to overcome that. In politics, I would think it would be even more difficult. Yeah, people take it personally. You know, I can't tell you how many times I tell people, actually, I tell candidates this all the time, you got to treat it like a game. Now, when I say a game, I don't mean something that is frivolous. I'm saying that there's a game plan. The opponent's job is to try to stop you, but you can't take it personally. I'm not sure how many people can accept that advice. I'm not sure if I can accept that advice. Well, it's difficult. When you're tested as often as athletes are, particularly professional athletes, you learn the value of everybody being on the same page. Yeah. You know, we've been talking a lot about coach to player, candidate to staff, but every once in a while you got to talk up. 
And by that, I mean you have to go to the person in charge. So if you're running for the Senate, how do you go to the head of the DNC? Or how do you go to someone above you in a sense? Occasionally, I presume when you were in the pros, you had to go to the owner. When you were in college, you had to go to the dean or the head of athletics. How do you argue up as opposed to laterally or down? Well, you don't you usually don't argue very successfully if you're <laughs> arguing up. If you don't have the support of those above you, it's incredibly challenging to be successful. Uh, and like when we were uh, successful at Seton Hall, there were many reasons. Yeah. The players, number one. But but had we not had the support of the administration, uh, the athletic director, Richie Regan and Larry Keating, uh, more importantly, all the presidents that, w- that we uh, had working for us and allowed us the time to get it straightened out, we never would have been successful. Yeah. Part of the reason that a, a franchise like San Antonio in basketball or the New England Patriots in football is so successful because it starts with the ownership, uh, a Peter Holt in San Antonio or yeah. Bob Kraft in New England, and they empower their people. They put people in position, they allow them to do their jobs, and they help them to do their jobs. They enable them. Uh, if you don't have that enabling from above, you can't be. You might be able to get through it for a year, but I mean, to sustain it, to be successful, you know, how you can have a successful candidate if you're not getting along with the DNC, if they don't buy into, they don't trust what you're doing and they don't support you. And they, don't, they have to support you, not just when it's going well. It's easy to have oh, that kind simple. of success when it's going well. It's when it's not going well, that's when you need the support from above. The other tangent we we should chat about has to do with your friend and mine, the press. One of my favorites, Mickey Mantle, I grew up in New York City, obviously childhood hero, once said, you don't realize how easy the game can be until you step into the broadcasting booth. Of course, he said that a little bit sarcastically. (laughs) But when you hear the press especially sports writers. And I have the feeling there's a lot of similarity between sports writers and political columnists. They always write you what you should be doing and what they would be doing. And it can be really, there's a word, a real pain in the ass. How do you deal with all the second guessing and the why didn't you, why don't yous? I, well, I think you ignore it. Um, some people are better at it than others. I mean, we all say we don't care. Of course you care. You know, you, if you read it or if you hear it, uh, you want people to be saying nice things about you. There's no question. But I think if you've dealt with it long enough and you understand, I mean, it, it was it was easy for me to not read and to not want to know. Uh, for other coaches, it's not. They they yeah. want they want to know. They say they're able to handle it, but they, they want to know one way or the other. My rule was always for my assistant coaches, I wanted somebody to read or to listen to know what was being said because there, there might have been something yep. said that we needed to address, but I didn't want to read the papers. I didn't want to listen to radio or I didn't want to watch television. But you need to know because there, there are often things said uh, or things going on that, that's important for you to know about. But if you take it too serious, you can't be successful. If you're that thin-skinned that, that it gets to you, to me, it's almost impossible to be successful at what you do. I still remember the first time I read something bad about me. Bob Novak used to be this really crotchety old Republican-leaning columnist. Once took a shot at me and, you know— I could not take my own advice. I mean, I stu- I to this day, I still stew about it. It's hard. The game may really be changing, though. I know it's changing in politics. 
Is the game of basketball changing? How do you adapt to it? Or is it just something about the game that's changing? No, I think the game is actually changing because of the skills of the athletes. I mean, it, it, it sounds crazy, but we literally have bigger, stronger, quicker, faster athletes playing this game yeah. now than we did. And, and you know, buildings are constructed. They, the court's not going to get any bigger. It wouldn't surprise me down the line if, the, if they did raise the basket a little bit. But um, yeah. it, it's just, Or expand the size of the court. Well, but there's hardly any room to. So many of the buildings are, oh, are, are constructed. Yeah, I mean, right. they can't. I mean, it, it would be a major, major adjustment to do that. You can raise baskets or you can yeah. play with the clock, you know, shot clock and things like that. But the court itself court is going to be stuck. is going to be hard to deal yeah. with. But I, I think it's changing. But what what's changing more than the court are the players. It's a different time. You don't have as many guys coming into the NBA who have been in college for four years, who are 22 years old, who often have degrees, um, who, who have seen and learned a lot in the four years. Not just at the basketball court. It's not just what you learn from a basketball coach. It's what you learn off the, off the floor. You know, for, for a lot of us, first time we were away from home or lived away from home or we yeah. didn't have somebody waking us up or you had some responsibility yourself, that occurred in college. And you don't get that as much in the NBA now. We get a lot of guys coming in to one and done or one year. Yeah. Uh, they're hardly at college more than five or six months. Months, the last game's over, they start training with agents, and they're not ready uh, yeah. to have a million dollars in their bank accounts and uh, all kinds of family members and friends coming at them and traveling around the country and playing against men. Yeah. The NBA has changed a lot. What's changed college a lot on the elite level yeah. are the one and dones. You don't have the continuity. We talked earlier about corporate knowledge. I mean, you used to, the best teams almost always in the past were junior, senior laden teams, guys that had played together right. for a couple of years, um, guys that were bigger and stronger because they were 21 or 22 years old as opposed to 18 or 19 years old. Now, oftentimes the best, the best teams, the best talent are the 18 or 19 year olds. And you don't have those teams that stay together for three or four years. So clearly the landscape is changing. Yeah, the landscape is changing a different way in politics right now and is best epitomized by, unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately, what happened to the guy who actually represented the district that my parents lived in till they passed, and that was Joe Crowley, who just got knocked off after a 14-year career and was supposed to be the heir apparent. And the emergence of the millennial and the Gen X and the Gen Z candidates, not to mention the growing size of the electorate that are millennials, Gen X, Gen Z, there are massive changes ahead. And I'm not sure we're ready for it. But probably we should be. <laughs> we don't have much choice. Right. It's done. Now, before we're done, I need to ask you about wisdom. And wisdom comes from people from whom we've learned. And I know you've had some incredible role models and colleagues and people you worked with or worked for. But of course, I got to cheat and start with your dad. Absolutely. I didn't realize it growing up, but my father was a football coach, primarily coached some other sports, yeah. but really was a football coach. And he was an athletic director. And I think if you go back to those 50 or 100 or 250 word compositions we wrote when we were in grammar school. What do you want to be when you grow up? I, I think there was a time when I wanted to fly a plane, but be a pilot. But most of them, I would have said I wanted to be a coach. And I probably didn't realize it was because of my father. But the lessons I learned from him, the lessons from my parents were really the backbone of every of everything I did. So the fact that I ended up in coaching and that my father was, was a coach and I admired him so much, I'm sure there was an awful lot of cause and effect there. Yeah, that's why it kind of 
pisses me off when the son or the daughter of somebody who has been in office runs and they say, well, aren't you just doing it because your parent? Well, why the hell do you think Cal Ripken played baseball? I mean, <laughs> exactly. It was how you were raised. There's nothing evil about or insidious about it. Yeah. One of the first coaches, I guess, prime time that you played for uh, Digger Phelps. Uh, amazing coach. Actually got to know Digger. Digger was remarkable because he came in. You talked about that first meeting and he came in and took a team that hadn't been successful the year before and installed a press. We pressed full court. He just the perfect system, perfect motivator for the guys we had. We had a senior laden team. Right. And he just, every button he pushed that year was perfect. And you learned so much from him. He was such a great motivator. He was such a great salesman. Self belief. You know, sometimes people say, well, he's too full of himself. They're missing the point. Uh, that confidence, that belief he has in himself translates so well to his teams over the years. And that is so important for Kennedy because if you you walk on that stage and you don't look like you believe you belong there, why should any voter? Mike Krzyzewski. Mike Krzyzewski is really a uh, start with friend. I've known Mike for, I can't even add it up, almost 50 years. Wow. Our families are very, very close. But he's also arguably the greatest college coach of all time. A phenomenal job with our Olympic team. Uh, you know, turn, but what did it he around. teach you? Belief in yourself. Uh, motivational skills, what Mike, is he a good X and O coach? Of course, he's a great X and O coach, but there's a lot of great X and O coaches. But uh, Mike's got the ability to motivate his team driving them and he's so loyal to his players he you know a lot of people talk about family and all that but uh mike's duke players are family the famous and some people would say infamous bobby knight uh bobby knight to me is the best teacher of the game of basketball i don't think anybody teaches the game better than he does literally teaches the art of playing basketball offensively and defensively uh he could be a challenge i don't know that i would want to be his athletic director or his president <laughs> i don't know if i would want him working for me but i know i would love to have my son play basketball for him uh he's a very complex individual but he's brilliant he's a fascinating person and as i said he's as good a teacher of the game as i think there's ever been And the last great guy that one, I presume, can learn a lot from is a guy I find really interesting, and that's Greg Popovich. And he fascinates me because he really started as a D3 coach. And one of my sons played D3 baseball all the way through. And you think of it as sort of junior sports, but it's really not. What did Greg teach you? Well, Pop taught me an awful lot. I had a chance to work for five years with Pop. He's a close friend, and I don't know him as long. I know him actually since the late 90s, so I probably know him 20 years, whereas like a Mike Krzyzewski or a Jim Beheim might be 50 years. The thing with Pop, uh, very similar to Mike K., which a lot of people don't realize. They went to school almost at the same time. One mm-hmm. was captain at West Point. The other was at the United States Air Force Academy. Wow. They both tried out for the 72 Olympic team. They both were extremely successful coaches. You could make the case that Pop is the most successful NBA coach, that Mike K. is the most successful college coach. And turned around stuff at Pomona. Both, exactly, Pomona Pitzer, but both from the Midwest. What's good, many things about Pop. Uh, First of all, fascinating individual. When he graduated from the Air Force Academy, uh, studied Russian, worked for the Air Force. Smart guy. Oh, yeah, very 
tremendously interested in world politics, tremendously interested in wine. Might know more about wine than he does about basketball, and that's a very serious statement because he knows an awful lot about basketball. Manages people very well. He's a people person. The way he treats individuals, he treats them differently. He understands that. He's a phenomenal motivator. He's very direct, and yet at the same time, he maintains great relations with his players. Doesn't take himself too seriously. Uh, He empowers those he works with. R.C. Buford is general manager. We talked earlier about people you work for. His relationship with Peter Holt, the owner of the Spurs, is is fantastic. Yeah, does does he know his X's and O's? Of course he does. Does he have a great work ethic and great discipline? Yes. But it's really more his people skills, the way he treats individuals. You talk about people skills. I remember there was a senator who said, if you don't like people, you better get the hell out of this business because this is about people and relating to them. Well, listen, if this were a basketball game, I would say there's about 10 seconds left (laughs) on the shot. There's time for one last shot. I'm going to pass you the ball. Any observation just about, I don't know, all the stuff that we've been talking about today? Just how difficult. um, I, I honestly think, Michael, it's gotten to the point where you wonder. I, I never really aspired to be a politician, but I, it's so hard. You talked about media and criticism, and I, I oftentimes wonder when I see a Barack Obama who I, who I you know, really worshipped and Bill Clinton, back the different politicians from either side of the aisle. I wonder what motivates them now to go into politics because it is so, so difficult what they and their families are subjected to. And, yeah. and I just admire them enormously for taking that path and, and trying to do the good things they try and do. It does take a special kind of person, but there are some men and women out there, hopefully on the young side, because we're going to need them going forward. Well, one last thing. In my next campaign, if I'm down three and it's a couple of weeks, okay if I give you a call for some last-minute advice? Absolutely. I don't know if it'll be good advice, but I welcome the <laughs> but call. I'll, I'll take it. We've been <laughs> talking to PJ Carlissimo, and you've been listening to Politics as Unusual. Today's episode was brought to you by FedEx. They're fast and they're affordable. And I'll catch you next week when I talk about talking with my friend Susan Orlean, who you know from The New Yorker magazine and her book, The Orchard Thief. There is something magical and fluid about writing on a computer and throw, we used to call it a vomit draft. It was just put something out there and you can always erase it and no one will ever know how bad it was. Politics as Unusual 